You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, I'm Robert Wright. I run the Non-Zero Foundation, which produces all the shows on Blogging Heads TV and Meaning of Life TV. We host a variety of voices, some of them pretty unorthodox, and we encourage dialogue that is sharp but civil. We think fostering constructive conversation is especially important now that America and the world are looking kind of fragile. If you agree that our mission is important, I hope you'll consider helping us shoulder the cost. You can do that by becoming one of our cherished patrons at patreon.com slash nonzero foundation. That's N-O-N-Z-E-R-O-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N. Thanks. We need your help, and we deeply appreciate it. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, R.A. Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is William DeResowitz. Uh, Bill, could you introduce yourself? <laughs> First of all, you got my name right. You pronounced it right. <laughs> I'm a writer. Um, I used to be an English professor. Uh, I just wrote this book about how artists are making a living. I've written a previous a couple of previous books. One is called Excellent Sheep, which is about elite education and how it screws up the kids who go through it and how they screw up society in turn. Um, I write about I, – I'm a reviewer and a critic as well. Uh, so that that book is – I'm holding it up to the camera right now. It's a great, uh, a great cover image for sure. Great cover. Uh, so, The Death of the Artist, subtitle is How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech. And so when I was, uh, when at recent uh, weeks when everyone asked me what I was reading, I said I was reading this book, The Death of the Artist, and they said, what was it about? I said, it's about how it's become very, the internet has made it very hard for artists to make a living. Uh, would you say that's an accurate summary? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's more to it than that, <laughs> right. but I would say that that's the, that's the headline. Um, so, okay, so, you were once an English professor, uh, in fact, at the same place where I went to college, uh, which is Yale University, and where I was an English major, and then you left academia and wrote this book that was uh, Excellent Sheep, which was kind of, yeah, a kind of critique of the modern uh, edu- higher educational institution, but, it, but also talking about the students in particular, so th- those were, I guess, the sheep of the title, and then um, what... Which made so made, since you left academia, it made sense you would write a book taking academia. But what what drew you to the topic of like the arts, economics, uh, the internet, and like you know the history of arts? And this book is pretty covers a lot of topics. So why did why was this the subject you wanted to pursue? Yeah, right. So excellent. She very naturally grew out of my experience as an English professor. Uh, it is about the students primarily, and what, like I said, what the system does to them, and it you know. It grew out of conversations I had with my students and the anguish and confusion and sense of aimlessness that they expressed to me. Uh, once I had finished that six years ago, um, I was thinking about my next project and a number of different things led me to it. Uh, I live in Portland, Oregon now. There are lots of young creators. Um, I was trying to figure out how they managed to make a living. Uh, but also, I mean, I was an English professor, and before that, when I was in graduate school, I was a dance critic when I lived in New York. And basically, my entire adult life has been lived, I wouldn't say in the arts, but in proximity to the arts. The arts are something that I care about 
very deeply. They've really made my entire life. But I would also say there's something that everybody cares about because I'm not just talking about elite art or high-end art. I'm talking about all art. I'm talking about pop music. I'm talking about narrative television. I'm talking about the books that people read, whether they read National Book Award-winning fiction or genre fiction. Uh, I would venture to say that most people spend several hours a day consuming art. And it was very clear to me that there was a financial problem. There was an economic problem uh, in terms of the Internet and what it had done to the ability of people to sustain careers and therefore everyone's ability to enjoy good art, great art, important art, art that matters to them. So that's what motivated me to write the book. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and you cover uh, multiple, you know, subgenres or disciplines within the arts. Um, so I guess, I, so I over yeah, I cover, I, I cover, I just, well, just to be clear, I cover music. I cover writing, I cover visual art, and I cover film and television. Sort of, to me, the four main forms of art. Um, and I focus very, in a very granular, very specific way. You know, I, I talk about sort of broad stuff, and then I have a, a separate chapter on each of those four. And within each chapter, I have half a dozen profiles. I want people to get a really clear sense, not just of the challenges, but how, of how people are meeting those challenges. Because you know, people are meeting them. It's tough, but they're doing it. Right. And so you interviewed a, a number of working artists, um, people who, you know, the average arts consumer would not probably have heard of, um, right. mostly, uh, to f talk about how they make a living. And I think that's one of the, um, you know, getting those voices in there um, is great. And yeah, you present a contrasting perspective. It's not all just like, constant doom and gloom or I mean it's definitely not constant boosterism that you the kind of thing you might have seen like 10 years ago from a book about the internet and the arts but um you know because there's people who are um kind of making it like made it in a big way and then people who are kind of slogging through and then there are people who are kind of like barely keeping it together um in this uh you know, the, the internet, the online economy and, you know, I mean, so much of the real economy is merged with the online economy, especially in media. And so I guess, so maybe before I was, I read the book, I would have thought something like, well, you know, there's this, there's the cultural image of the starving artist, you know, like Van Gogh or something and someone who like, maybe they, they had no success in their life. I believe, you know, right. Is this true? You only sold one painting his entire life and then, you know, he killed himself. Uh, and now, you know, everyone recognizes his genius. So there's the people who are geniuses and aren't recognized in their time. And then there's the people who are, uh, you know, the bohemians, which is a, a term you use who are kind of at the edges and they're kind of scruffy and maybe they don't eat very well and they like smoke cigarettes a lot. Uh, but they're like, they have kind of their community and they're like doing avant-garde type stuff and like they are, they're making art. Maybe they're you know not getting rich from it, but kind of you know they're they're doing their thing. And maybe that is an image of the, an artist from like the nineteen fifties, nineteen seventies in America, um, something like that. And I think you have a lot of people who want to be artists, but just don't have the talent or um, the connections or the lucky break. You emphasize luck a lot as in the book as something. That, that is not not required, but like it, it definitely helps when there's some a chance encounter leads someone to a connection that 
you know, leads to leads to a job or, or something like that. So maybe just you know, people are, some people are unlucky and they they never um, they never catch their lucky break. Um, so, but I think that you 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 paint a much more complicated <laughs> picture about what's actually happening, and it's not just that like the uh, you know artists are always like tortured and starving and uh, and <laughs> and uh, yeah, rack, let- you know racking their brains by themselves to uh, produce something. Yeah, let me break down what you've been saying. So to go back a little bit, yes, the book is based primarily on a lot of interviews, about 140 interviews, uh, mostly with artists. I also talked to other insiders, you know, music producers, television producers, uh, book editors, academics, journalists who've written about this. Um, it's very much not bo- boosterish. Uh, you talked about how 10 years ago – there were a lot of books that were saying it's really easy to be an artist now. I mean, people are still saying that. A lot of people are still saying that. There are a lot of podcasts that promote that line. That's it's the Silicon Valley line. It's what I start the book with. Mm-hmm. That there's this idea that because of the internet, you can just put your stuff out there and you'll have this great career. You know, six figures, making six figures from your home, doing the music you love or the visual art that you love. Mm-hmm. You know, so, this so, is propaganda. So, so someone you critique a lot is um, the, lo- the author of The Long Tail. Is it Chris Anderson? Is that his name? Yes. Which was this book that was like, you know, the internet means that the the long tail, like the, the in the distribution where there's uh, just a, a few, you know, hits or something for, or a few purchases, uh, you can still, because there's so many people who are out there now and have access to it, like you can make a living off of the thing that isn't yeah, actually I mean, super the, popular. Right. The idea was that in the word of, world of brick-and-mortar stores, uh, only a certain number of products could get access to the consumer. You know, let's think of a record shop or a bookstore. Anderson said that, you know, the, the Internet created an infinite shelf, which would extend the, te- that, that, the sales curve, the tail of the sales curve. So you'd still have a lot of, you know, a few stars at the, at the fat head, but the tail will get longer and longer, which means that anyone could have their stuff out there and people would be, you know, searching the internet as these very active, engaged connoisseurs and finding all these niche acts and lots and lots of people out in the, on the infinite shelf would be able to sustain careers. And this is an idea from 10 or 15 years ago. And it turned out to be completely the opposite of what actually happened because the algorithms drive people towards the head. So in fact, the tail has gotten longer, but it's also gotten thinner. And the blockbuster, the blockbusters in the, in the head, the pop stars, the best-selling authors, the big Hollywood movies are actually uh, accruing a greater and greater share of revenue. So for example, in the age of Michael Jackson's thriller in the 1980s, 80% of, of revenue in the music industry went to 20% of acts. Now 80% goes to 1% of acts. And that's happening across the arts. So to go back to what you were asking me before, and I lay this out in a historical chapter, there was a period, a long period, where sort of the typical artist was what we used to call a bohemian, which means that both for reasons of economic necessity and ideology, they try to stay on the margins of the market. You know, art and money shouldn't mix. If you if you think about money, you're a sellout. An artist is a kind of secular prophet. All, the, all these ideas, the sort of heroic, solitary, genius, rebel. Uh, and I don't, I don't, I'm not saying those terms to make fun of them. I think there's something very valuable about them. Um, and artists would stay 
on the edges in bohemian communities and just kind of dip their toe in the market to the extent that they needed to. What this looked like as recently as the 1970s is that you would have a part-time minimum wage job, and that was enough to support your artwork, and you could live in a in a low income in a low sorry a low rent bohemian community, including in places like New York City. New York City was a very cheap place to live up through and including the 1970s, which is one reason that Bohemia's like Greenwich Village were stable for about three quarters of a century. Then things started to change. Uh, in the 1980s, rents started to go up. Tuition started to go up. This is all part of the kind of the neoliberal reorganization of society where we withdrew support for public universities, where uh, the housing market became increasingly commodified, where the kinds of people who used to move to the suburbs now decided that they wanted to stay in the cities or move back to the cities. So costs started to go up. And then the internet came along and, and that forced revenues down, right? So anything that can be digitized, starting with Napster in 1999 with music, anything that can be digitized, the price has been driven to zero or near zero for musicians, for writers, for many visual artists like photographers, uh, for people who do independent film. Uh, and that's the situation we're at now. So the bohemian possibility is not really a possibility anymore because you can't support yourself with a part-time minimum wage job. Uh, you know, minimum, the, the, the real value of the minimum wage and of, and of other low wage work that's pegged to the minimum wage has gone down. As we, as I said, rent costs and that, in, that includes costs for studio space, for rehearsal space. Those have gone up tremendously, over 40% in real terms in the last 20 years. So now we're entering this new, this new world where the artist has to be immersed in the market all the time. Um, Part of that is, you know, uh, opportunity as well. The internet really has given you the opportunity to manage your own career, to not have to sign with a label, sign with a publisher. You can make your own films, just put them out there. But it means that you have to manage your own career. It means that all the functions performed by those gatekeepers, by those culture industry institutions, you now can do, but also have to do yourself. And what does that do? It throws you in the market. It means that you have to think about marketing, promotion, distribution, branding. So what it means to be an artist, as well as the day-to-day -day texture of the lives of artists, is changing. It's changing a lot. Mm -hmm. um, do you think, so the sort of um, uh, dream of the internet in the early days was kind of like decentralization, uh, you know, anyone can put whatever they want on their own little website. And, and then once the, um, you know, the kind of sharing communities grew up, I mean, you know, Napster was obviously violating copyright law or whatever. Um, it, yes, it was. Did you actually, this is interesting. Did you, um, did you ever use Napster? Or was that, was you a little, were you a little, a little too old to ever have gotten into it? Too old. Okay. Cause I used, I was in high school. I would have been 16 in 1999 and, we somehow learned about Napster and it was like, it was like the greatest thing ever. It was wild. Like we, <laughs> yes, we, we couldn't yes. believe, I mean, it yes. still it was kind of funny about it was it was still very clunky and you had to sort of search for things. And sometimes you would be looking for something and it wouldn't be there, which is like unimaginable in today's internet that you would, something would exist and you can't find it. But like, sometimes you'll be downloading something and it would go away. You only have half, half the file, but we, my friends and I would 
you know, we would download all the shit. We would burn it onto CDs. We were just getting driver's licenses. We were driving around listening to the music we liked instead of listening to the radio or listening to, you know, a CD we bought. It seems like heaven um, in 1999. And, uh, of course, we didn't realize the full implications of it uh, at that time. But it was, I mean, it's cliche, but, like, it really was revolutionary in, in multiple ways. But how did, okay, so how did the... How did the dream, uh, the dream, <laughs> the dream of the nineties? I'm thinking of that, uh, Portlandia. Yeah, right. Uh, Portlandia. Skit, um, as you're in Portland, how did that, like, uh, whole Earth catalog kind of dream, uh, give way to, you know, Facebook and Google are controlling all the ads and, you know, they're directing everyone ends up watching the same music videos. It's not the, the long tail did not work out. Is it because, is it like just the nature of the internet or is it, was it that the algor- the specific algorithms they made made it so that, they're always directing you to what everyone else, what it thinks you want because everyone else wants it also. Right. So can I, if I can go back for a second, I mean, you're absolutely right. And lots of people, including musicians said this to me, like this is the greatest thing in the world, unlimited free music. Um, who could have a problem with that and unlimited free journalism and unlimited free images. Um, I'm trying to call, and I'm not the first person to do this, trying to call people's attention to the fact that unlimited free everything may have some real problems. It's the same thing. I make an analogy. It's the same thing with fast food or what we call fast fashion. You know, we can eat really cheaply in fast food restaurants, like ridiculously cheaply because because of the way these calories have been subsidized. But it's really bad for us. It's really bad for the land. It's really bad for the animals. Fast fashion means, you know, dresses that you can buy for $10 or whatever it is that are made in sweatshops in places like Bangladesh and Vietnam. And over the last, you know, 10, 20, however many years, our consciousness as consumers has been raised about this. So there's a food movement that's reacted to fast food. Some, there's also – it's called – I mean in one aspect of it is called the slow food movement and people have been trying to become more conscious consumers about fast fashion. It's the same with fast art um, and I guess this partly ties back to what you just asked me. One of the reasons that uh, art can be so cheap is that a lot of these companies have been subsidized with enormous amounts of venture capital. It's the same reason that Uber – Uber still loses money on every ride. The long-term strategy with Uber is to use mountains, billions and billions of dollars of venture capital to drive the cab companies out of business and to drive Lyft out of business and everybody else, every competitor out of business. And then once Uber is the only place left that you can get a ride, they will start to raise prices. Mm-hmm. Of course, they're already immiserating their workers, right? I mean, the effective pay rate for Uber is about $5 an hour. So – it's the same with Spotify. It was the same with Amazon. Amazon lost money for 15 years. Um, so that's part of the answer to how the internet has evolved. You ask me, is it the nature of the internet? I'm not a, the kind of internet expert like someone like Jaron Lanier is and other people who, who say we can envision a better internet. All I can say is how it's actually evolved. And the way it's actually evolved is towards a logic of, of extreme monopoly. And it is partly the nature of sort of what people call network effects, like everybody's on Facebook because everybody's on Facebook. Everybody buys everything on Amazon because they were already buying – I mean this was the whole strategy with Amazon. They were never interested in buying books, in selling books. They were interested in gathering an audience of affluent consumers, the book-buying public, and then selling them everything else. 
those companies in turn, you know, use algorithms to amplify the virality of what's already viral. So the books that get the most attention on Amazon are the ones that are already selling well. So both the companies themselves have established monopolies and then within those are Google, you know, the most popular things that are searched for or that are clicked on become the highest results in the search. So the companies themselves uh, create blockbuster effects within cultural content. And look, let's face it. There's, there are a few people, I would say probably the real connoisseurs, the real sort of professionals in any industry, you know, serious musicians. They're on SoundCloud and they're looking for the obscure, you know, reggae track from 1983 or whatever it is or the, the niche band that they're into. But most people are lazy and most people <laughs> just scan, you know, they look through their net, the Netflix offerings on the homepage or they listen to a Spotify playlist, New Music Friday or whatever it is. And, you know, just the way people used to listen to radio or still, I mean, still do listen to radio. You listen to what's put, you know, you eat what's put in front of you. So it's a, it's a combination of VC money, the logic of the Internet, the behavior of the monopolies and our consumer behavior. Our consumer behavior. Right. Yeah, that, I mean, that, yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, the thing is that are offered up to us in this new world. Like I said, in some ways, they're miraculous. Uh, I can get, if I have a Kindle e-reader, e I can get, which I don't, because I like physical books, but if I did, I could get access to virtually any book ever published instantaneously. So that, if you told someone that 30 years ago, they would be like, wow, this is, you know, this is revolutionary. This is the most amazing thing ever. Um, and, and same with basically ordering any product and it gets delivered to you very quickly and or any song, any any video. And when there's, when there's something that, like, happened on video and you can't find it on YouTube, you're like, what? Like, what? You know, am I using the wrong search terms? This has to be out here somewhere. Like, someone has uploaded <laughs> – this happened on videotape. Someone has, has uploaded it somewhere. And, I mean, there's, so there's good things about that. You get to see whatever you want. Um, yeah, I'm wondering – and I guess you – well, what, what are your thoughts about this? Like, a lot of the um, the breakdown – has happened because of sort of like the logic of capitalism, like working itself out and the things like there was economic surplus in various like market inefficiencies, such as the fact that local newspapers had a monopoly on uh, help wanted and for sale ads. And somehow through a strange process that made it so that they could pay someone to go to the city hall hearing and talk to the counselors afterward and maybe figure out if something corrupt was happening. Um, but really there's very little connection between you know, the help wanted ads and the personals and the, and sending someone down to sit to cover the, the boring city hall meeting. It was just like a weird accident of technology and history. And so that's been disaggregated by, um, Craigslist and Facebook marketplace is that newspapers have lost a huge amount of revenue and they can no longer afford to send someone, you know, to pay a middle-class salary to someone to be a, uh, local politics reporter in like a mid-sized city. So, but like it, it was just a weird like a weird accident that the newspapers had the local monopoly on local advertising and and, and other and and so like so currently you know there's this like and you talk about there's like this renaissance in of of all the arts you cover the one that's having a renaissance is television and streaming and like all sorts of interesting weird stuff is is being produced by Netflix and Amazon and HBO and and some of the um, premium cable you know, other premium cable networks and, and AMC and such. Um, but in some ways it's like they, they, they have the money because it's a subscription model and people are giving them like extra, you know, we, we give them like more money 
um, without really thinking about it. So, so tens of millions of people are giving Netflix, you know, seven ninety nine a month, and so they're able to funnel that into creating weird shows like Orange Is the New Black or something that that never would have aired um, on TV to begin with. But that's also like a weird, you know, that's not like I'm going to the store to buy an apple kind of thing. It's it's like I'm in like I'm entrusting Netflix with all the with with the money so that they can keep on entertaining me. That's like you know that's I guess it's more like a magazine model or something. But it's you can imagine yeah. that breaking down also if there's different different technology and like Netflix's original model was sending DVDs in the mail. They weren't creating original content and and once they got into streaming, they got all this great stuff on their service because the. Uh, whoever owned the intellectual property didn't realize how valuable it actually was, and so they like signed it away for a song, and so they, they had it for a number of years, and now those periods of times are running out, and so they're like, you know, Universal, you know, is, is gets uh, Jurassic Park once again, or something like that, and presumably you know, like Universal is going to set up their own version of Netflix so that they can make money letting people all stream Jurassic Park instead of Netflix making money on it. So, so there's always like I don't mean you know there's always these weird changes and and the way the, the technology and is interacting with with the current media and we're obviously in like a state of, state of super flux but in, in previous eras and certainly future eras like weird weird stuff is all is always happening does this make, does this make any sense? Well, let me say a couple of things. I mean, first of all, to start with what you said about television. This is really important. Yeah, television is undergoing a renaissance. There are all these great shows. Um, it's because we still pay for it. It's very simple. If somebody figured out to do to television what Napster did to music, that would go away very quickly. That would go away as fast as the music industry did, which means within a year or two. I mean, it didn't go away, but it, it's a third of the size that it was. We still pay for it. We need to recognize that equation. We pay for stuff. We get good stuff. We don't pay. We get shit. <laughs> the other thing to say, the other thing to say, it, so yes, you're right. It was, it was sort of a historical accident that journalism used to be subsidized by local uh, classified ads and then Craigslist took away the classifieds and then Google and Facebook took away everything else in right. terms of advertising. And that was an accident. And, you know, Newspapers will just have to figure out a different way. That's what the Silicon Valley asshole said. Just figure out a different way. Well, in the meantime, um, thousands of newspapers have gone out of business. Hundreds of thousands of journalists and people who work in newspapers have lost their jobs. And we no longer have the same oversight over especially local and state government because, because the people aren't there. And we haven't figured out a, way, a different way to pay for it because, again, people can get what they want for free. But – Another thing that's really important to recognize is that all that free stuff is making a fortune for the platforms, right? Their count I – mean, why is – you know, YouTube – half of all music streaming happens over YouTube. Uh, a huge percentage of what happens on YouTube is music streaming. YouTube, it's a, it's a division of Google now. We don't know exactly how much it makes, but the most recent estimates I saw from earlier this year are that it makes about $30 billion a year and is worth about $300 billion as a standalone company. So every year when you add to YouTube other things, tens of billions of dollars of revenue are being generated by the arts 
by musicians and writers and visual artists and people who make video. But it's not going to them. It's going to the platforms. You talked about market efficiencies. Markets are structured. They're not naturally occurring phenomena. One of the things that libertarians and market fundamentalists want us to believe is that markets just are self-regulating phenomena that sort of spring up naturally. Mm -hmm. This is not true. (laughs) They are structured by legislation. Uh, In a sense, they're structured by litigation or they're they're limited by litigation. They're shaped by litigation, regulation. We have allowed, you know, the attitude of Congress in the early days of the internet is here, you know, we just hit this gusher of new GDP and let's just let it ride and let's not regulate the internet. We won't charge sales tax for items sold over the internet and we'll just, uh, the last time copyright law was updated for the internet, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, Facebook did not, this was in 96, 7, 8, I forget the exact year, Facebook didn't exist. Amazon was young. Google had just started. Napster hadn't exist, didn't exist yet. So our structures, our regulatory structures, our antitrust laws, they are wildly out of date for the internet. And we need to do something. I mean, people in a variety of fields, you know, whether you're talking about education, you're talking about the economy, I'm talking about the arts, we've all reached the same conclusion. We've got to do something about these monopolies. They're now, you know, I mean, uh, the pandemic has only made it worse. Uh, the last time I looked, uh, the big five, uh, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, and Microsoft, their market value was up 37% since the start of the year, and the rest of the market was down 6%. These companies now account for something like 20% of the entire economy. We need to do something about it. We need to break them up, and the parts that can't be broken up, which are the core platforms themselves, need to be regulated like utilities. Rates need to be set. Our, YouTube pays uh, seven hundredths of a cent. This is an estimate because we don't really know because they don't have to tell us. Seven hundredths of a cent per stream. That's not seven cents. That's not seven tenths of a cent. It's seven hundredths of a cent. Mm-hmm. That means if your music is streamed a million times – you get $700. That can't be allowed to continue if we, want to have, if we want to have music. If we want to have music that means anything to anybody and not just amateur shit that people are making on their laptops, we need to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's, let's look at one of the kind of cases that you um, you look at, uh, you know, one of, one of the, the different arts. And let's, well, I guess we've talked about music a lot. Well, I want to look at visual art because I guess that's one that I hadn't really thought all, all that much about. Um, and I think you say it, in some ways it's visual art is maybe less, less disrupted. I mean, certainly than, than, than music and writing. And there's some parts that are still functioning, you know, the, kind of the gallery system is still, is, is still functioning. And actually I do want to ask about that specifically and, and whether, what is it just, why, uh, you know, uh, Sam Goody has gone out of business, but the high-end uh, art galleries are are uh, are still like the dominant dominant players in the in the fine art market. But how is what what have been the big effects in in visual art? Um, right. So so let me say first of all that large parts of 
of what we call the visual arts, broadly speaking, are similar to music and writing because they can be digitized. So illustrators, graphic artists, photographers, animators, their situation is very similar to music, musicians and writers and videographers. The thing about what we call the art world or high-end visual art, the stuff that gets sold in galleries and displayed in museums, is that they're not digitizable. They're unique objects, and that makes all the difference. Now, things have been changing there, and they've also been changing not for, for the good. It hasn't been a function of the Internet. It has been a function of uh, rent, in especially in New York City and other art centers. So uh, – Crucially, mid-tier galleries have, are being driven out of business. This started with a financial collapse. The pandemic has created another wave of this. Uh, the kinds of places where mid-tier artists, people who are not the stars, show their work or people on their way up show their work. And this is part of a larger trend. In general, one of the big themes of my book, one of the big themes of the arts economy is that the middle is getting wiped out. Mid-tier galleries – indie presses, indie labels, sort of the mid-level artist in general. So what we see in the visual arts is, it's again, it's that fat head, it's that blockbuster effect. This is one of, of all the statistics in the book that kind of blew me away just in researching it. I think the one that was the most striking to me was that if you total up all the sales of all the artwork by all the living artists in the world, living artists, so not, you know, a Picasso goes up on auction, but all the living artists... 64% of that market goes to 20 people. <laughs> this is by a dollar amount? It by do be, of course. Yeah, because you like number of, number of purchases. Right. Yeah, that's incredible. So, so talk about a fat head. And we've seen <laughs> the same thing at the galleries, right? The mid-tiers are getting wiped out, and there are these, these behemoths like Gagosian, which now has 16 galleries in seven countries, I think, including five in New York City alone. So again, it's this blockbuster consolidation. Um, there may be, you know, there's more and more money in the visual arts that high end, the, the art, the art market is like doubled in the last few years. It's like $65 billion. But as I just said, the overwhelming majority is going to a tiny number of artists and all of the aspiring artists who graduate from art school every year. And it's something like 90,000 people get BAs and another 20,000 get MFAs every year in visual and performing arts. Very few of them are going to have a chance to sustain a career selling their work. Some of them will be able to sustain a career selling their work plus teaching plus maybe working for an arts institution. But actually, there was a survey and of the 2 million arts graduates in the United States, only 10% make their living as artists. So that's the answer. It's different. Visual art is different because it's unique objects in many ways. It's the same because it's subject to the same forces that are kind of pushing everything to the top, including rent, which is especially bad for visual artists because they have to pay for a studio as well. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we on uh, the on blogging as we we just posted a conversation that uh, Glenn Lowry had with um, a Yale law professor. Uh, I believe his name is David Mark Markowitz, Markowitz, and he wrote this book uh, uh, yeah. against meritocracy. I'm forgetting the title right now, but he he noted that the um, like the the meritocratic logic has infected prestige fields like law and uh, and medicine, such that you know the people at the very top are like 
these super, super skilled geniuses. You can manipulate, you know, whatever they need to do so that they can, uh, you know, um, like, like he said, it really, like it really symbolic is symbolic manipulation. Yeah. Yeah. Or, I mean, if you're a certain, if you're a heart surgeon, like actual manipulation, okay. but like they're, yeah, these people really are super skilled, but the entire, yes. the entire economy has been, has been changed. So to sort of like funnel people towards that super specialization instead of like, uh, general practitioners or like local lawyers who could kind of help you out with, you know, the standard problems that a normal right. purpose person would have. And there's, I guess maybe there's a, you know, something here, I'm, think, I'm just thinking about like Jeff Koons and how, you know, the, are these, uh, you know, these artists who I guess came up through like the eighties and nineties who do these like spectacular things that require these fabricators. And like, so, so, you know, Jeff Koons sells something for 50 million, but he's like employing a hundred people in the studio or something who are all like, you know, shaving like, you know, unicorn horns or whatever the fuck to um create his bizarre creation. And, <laughs> and so it's not just like, yeah, it's beyond like the um, Renaissance master who had a studio, or maybe he wasn't like doing everything. But like, like he is, he is. Well, whatever. He's the he's no, the creative, similar to that. Yeah, he's the creative genius. But then there's like a hundred, and probably most of them are have like MFAs, and they are absolutely. The, they're probably they're super all aspiring artists. They're yes. super skilled, but they're like working in pursuit of him to like polish his, you know, giant bunny or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, that, that just popped into my head. But I, I think, yeah, the, I mean, the superstar, it is. It is strange how the the original vision of the internet would be like sort is sort of flat and anyone can do whatever they want and then instead it just it became it reified the superstar system that was that was happening you know in in the uh, in the larger culture and economy anyway such that you know probably well before the pandemic like Paul McCartney and the Rolling Stones were still like the number <laughs> like the top touring acts and. Um, and yeah, the, the the people at the at the very top just get more and more attention, even though theoretically the people towards the long tail could like that, exactly now have a platform right. that they couldn't that they didn't have before. That's exactly right, and and uh, I mean we see it across the economy. I think it's especially bad in the arts, but we see it across the economy. Um, one thing I want to go back to though, you said that I talk about luck in the book. I, I don't spend a lot of time talking about it, but I do mention it. But I but what one of the things that I say about luck is that luck isn't pure luck. People tend to be lucky who are already privileged, right? It's like lucking into getting into a good college or lucking into a good apartment or lucking into marrying someone who's rich. Uh, that kind of luck tends to favor people who've already been fortunate in life. And so one of the big advantages uh, is privilege. One of the big unfair advantages is not merely luck but privilege. And one of the things that's at stake here as we suck more and more money out of the arts, is who's going to get to do it? Because more and more of the people who are still making art are the ones who don't need the money because they have family money or they don't need as much money or they have money from a spouse. And we know that wealth in this country and actually in probably every country correlates with race and it correlates to a certain extent with gender. So this is a crisis. This is not you know, this is not just about the starving artist and who gives a shit anyway, because quite frankly, I think most people don't care, although they should. It's about, you know, we're, we've been talking about diversity. We talk about equity, inclusion, access. These are all tied to economics and we have to pay. We, we can't expect. We cannot expect to have a culture where people from marginalized communities have an equal voice. If we don't pay cultural producers a decent amount of money, enough money to live. 
I mean, that could just sort of go down the list. Why is publishing so white? Well, because publishing, you know, entry level positions in the publishing industry pay a tiny amount of money. They're often internships that pay no money. So who's going to get to do that? And you have to live in New York City for 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 most of them. And you have to live in New York City. So you need so a parental, exactly you need a parental right. subsidy, more or less, and. Um, you, you, so it's yes. almost impossible for you know a poor person to, to take that entry level job. And then yeah, so I mentioned luck in the sense of like it was lucky that this artist ran into this person at no, a, no, party, a party sure. or something. But like, sure. what, but how did she get into the party? Like, how did she the, get to the party? Right, the person exactly. who has no connections or or anything, you know, no education, but has skill, probably isn't getting into that party where they happen to run into a particular person who could help their career. So I think yeah, so yeah, you. I mean, there's this you make your own luck is like a well known. Um, you know, aphorism, but, but it's like, you know, your luck is also made for you, I guess, based on your background Absolutely. and, you know, Absolutely. education and, and what your parents did and, and so forth. Uh, so let's talk about art school a little bit and also like academia as, so, so academia is, um, is like, I mean, a traditional way, at least maybe since the, the end of World War II, that an artist could have a supplemental in income would be to teach. Um, and, but often these jobs are like adjunct or not, you know, they're not tenure track. There's not that many of them. People are constantly, you know, 3000 people applying for one job, that kind of thing. So that's in itself is tough, but also you have a critique of art school in here. And I couldn't help but think like, you know, the person who is, who struggles a lot as an artist and then become an art teacher is teaching all these people who are going to go and struggle a lot if they actually want to pursue this. And most of them are not, are not going to succeed. And are they like setting them up for failure um, it, you know, is, is the entire like art school thing like setting a Ponzi scheme? Most people are for failure. Yeah, I mean, it really uh, the way it can be described is is like a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. So to go back, um, you just alluded to this. We talked earlier about the Bohemian sort of prototype or paradigm, as I call it. Uh, actually, that pretty much uh, substantially came to an end around the middle of the 20th century. It's not that it came to an end, but it was superseded by a different paradigm, which I call the professional one. So actually, after World War II, we, we had this thing that we called the culture boom, and it was also accompanied by a higher education boom and a general professionalization of the economy. So being a, a full-time mid-tier artist actually became a profession. And you weren't a bohemian anymore in the sense of living hand to mouth or living in the margins of society. You were a respected professional with middle class income, middle class status, middle class career paths. This was true both in the nonprofit side and the for profit side. One of the biggest pieces of that, as he just suggested, was university teaching. You know, the universities like we literally tripled or quadrupled the size of higher education in in the decades after the war. And it became a normal part of the career path of Literary novelists, poets, painters and sculptors, theater professionals to get jobs in academia. And those were good jobs. Those were full-time tenure, tenure track jobs. Sometimes in the arts you didn't have tenure, but you had a long time, you know, sort of a long-term secure job. Now, what's happened to the professional model we've already, in a sense, talked about is that the internet came along and pulled the rug out from all those professions, whether it's the culture industry supporting professional musicians, professional writers, or academia. In the case of academia, it wasn't the internet directly, but a variety of factors, and I've written about this. I was a professor in my polemics against the academy. I talk about this a lot, was this long-term shift from good, tenure-track, well-paid, secure, stable employment to 
crappy adjunct poverty wage jobs. So that shelter of academia, that solution that used to exist for the problems of of poor artists has now just become a different form of the same problem. In academia in general, only about 30% of faculty members are on the tenure track. So the normal cut type of professor, that's only 30%. In art schools, uh, the number is more like 10%. So the overwhelming majority of people who teach in art schools, and that includes writing programs and theater programs and so forth, are adjuncts. Then the question is, should people, people be going to art schools in the first place? And for a lot of people, the answer is no. I mean, I talk to a lot of people about this, and somebody who's taught at a lot of art schools and is a very compassionate teacher said to me, a lot of these kids shouldn't be there. They're there for the wrong reasons. They're there because they weren't academically gifted in high school. They're there because they're marking time after college, so they're getting a master's degree, but they don't really know what they want to do with their lives. They're there because they think they want to change the world and revolutionize the world by making art, but they're not really good artists. <laughs> they should be journalists or lawyers instead. And in any case, as I said earlier, only like 10% of people who graduate from art schools actually end up making a living as artists. The art schools have gotten overbuilt. There, there are many, many, many more programs than there used to be, many more schools offering programs, many more people in art school, like more than twice as much as there were 30 years ago. Um, and especially since 2008, the schools actually – Strangely, applications have been going down since 2008, but the number of slots haven't, hasn't gone down because the schools need the tuition revenue. Mm -hmm. So what's gone down? Rather, what's gone up? Admissions rates have gone up. Most art schools take most of the people who apply. There are a few art schools, the famous ones, that take almost you know less than 10%, and everybody else – even before you get out of the top 20, out of hundreds of programs, they're already taking more than 50%. They're taking people who shouldn't be there. They're saddling them with enormous amounts of debt. And this is also part of my critique, and I talk about this in the book. They are not teaching them how to make a living once they get out. Now, I was an English professor. I've inveighed over and over again against turning higher ed into vocational ed, betraying the liberal arts by turning them into vocational school. But I also recognize that if we're going to te continue to teach the liberal arts, continue to teach the fine arts, we owe it to our students to help connect what they're studying to the job market. It doesn't mean you have to change what you're studying. It doesn't mean you have to betray the mission. But you have to help people figure out how to make a living with what you're teaching them. Otherwise, you're betraying them. And most art schools haven't figured out how to do that. Yeah. Um, and I, as, like I said before, as someone who, uh, attended the university where you taught and majored in what you were teaching, although I never had you as a professor, um, I, yeah, I've, I, as I've grown older, I've, I've looked back on my undergraduate education and wondered, you know, uh, what was the point and why did I do the, do this? And if I could run my life again, would I have done it differently? And I don't really have answers at this point. I mean, I enjoyed myself reading, you know, the great works of the Western canon uh, and having great professors um, uh, teach me about them. But um, yeah, I, guess, I mean, you know, the liberal arts are maybe are one step away from the fine arts and, and 
closer to the fine arts than like to the STEM stuff where it's like, what, you know, what, what is the practical, uh, use of, of this knowledge? And, um, and yeah, how do you get, how do you, uh, make enough money to pay the rent afterwards? But, but let me, but let me say this. I mean, the truth is that liberal arts majors actually do very well in the job market ultimately because they're learning skills that be, that become very important, especially as you get farther and farther along in your career. The skills that are derided as soft skills, but they're actually very important. Um, the problem again is that unlike a STEM field, it isn't there isn't a one-to-one connection between what you study in school and what you're going to do when you get out of school. It doesn't mean that the degree isn't valuable in the market. It means that students need to help need help understanding how it's valuable and how that value can be translated into a job. And I would even say the same thing about fine arts. Although People have told me, quite frankly, a lot of people have told me, well, several people told me that BFAs are often kind of worthless and it depends on the program and they even, they would even advocate that a, that an undergraduate artist major in the liberal arts. Um, leaving that aside though, I mean, a good arts program actually gives you all kinds of soft skills and I talk about this in the book that can help you make a living outside of the arts or outside of being an arts practitioner. There are a lot of careers in the arts that don't involve actually mainly being an artist. A lot of them are in education. Um, but also, even just soft skills that, that apply widely, you're putting together projects, you're collaborating, you're learning how to communicate with people in a variety of different ways. The point is not, I may have sounded like this earlier, but really the point is not that a fine arts major is useless financially. It's that art schools are not helping students figure out how it's useful because the, because the faculty have this attitude like we – it's not our job and you shouldn't think about money when you're an artist and you're betraying the whole idea if you don't become an artist when you graduate or you stop being an artist. You know, that's all bullshit. And there are lots of careers that a fine arts degree can help set you up for. Right. And you need – you need help figuring out what those are. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And I mean, it's, yeah, it's different when you're talking about the elite, uh, sort of super name brand places versus somewhere in the middle. Um, and just how much the, uh, you know, the brand name of where you got a degree from that, you know, gets you in the door, um, in the way that somewhere in the middle or towards the bottom wouldn't. Um, so the final, Sorry, go ahead. Let me just interrupt you. I mean, yes, first of all, only a small fra- – you know, there are hundreds of arts programs and only a few of them are the marquee names. And clearly people who study art at Arizona State or the University of Florida, they're not going to have much entry into the gallery system and obviously – but it's not – I mean, I want to be clear. Even if you did your degree – even if you get an MFA from Yale, even if you get a BFA from RISD, your chances are small that you're going to be able to sustain a gallery career, a museum career, long-term. Everybody thinks they're going to make it, and most of them, even in those programs, even in those programs, most people are not going to be in the game 10 or 20 years after graduation. And people need to understand that. Right. And, I mean, so one of the things you note is that, you know, you interviewed 150 people working in the arts today, it's hard. The people who dropped out of the system at some point, it's harder to find that sort of person just to interview them. That's but also, right. what is interview them? Yeah, there. I mean, the. I mean, you, I mean, you can imagine like a book of um, personal essays by people who went to art school and are now 
doing anything that's not in the arts and like how do how how do they adapt to that and did their education help them at, or her hinder them that might be maybe that exists somewhere that that could be interesting um so the final part of the book uh is, the title is uh, what is to be done and that's a resonant title perhaps pointing towards the perspective you have um about how you know what solutions can happen in this economy uh because is it is it lenin wrote a trash called what is to be done uh i think there was more than one actually in okay. that Russian radical tradition. I think he may have written one of them, yes. Um, but I think there was an earlier one. Okay, yeah, that's, that, that would make sense. Chernyshevsky, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, okay, so in some ways it seems, you know, the problems seem huge, and, you know, these economic forces, giant, um, you know, uh, multi-billion dollar companies that control all of our data and maybe, you know, are just getting stronger uh, every year, and and then um, yeah, it, it's, the system seems like a, a, to me, absent some sort of technological cha- technological change, the system does seem kind of stable in this way right now. In the in the way that maybe the system seemed like stable in the eighties before there was the technolo- technological change in the internet. But what what are your, what are your what are your um, ideas about how? We can make it easier for uh, for artists and writers. Yeah, I mean, it's a big problem. I mean, I talk in that last chapter, especially uh, about things that people in various arts are doing to try to make things better, uh, and and they're very specific sort of uh, legislative or practical reforms. So the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which governs copyright and piracy under it, needs to be reformed. Nonprofit institutions who employ artists need to pay them better, etc. Those are all important, but they're small scale. They are not commensurate with the scale of the problem. And as we suggested earlier, the real solutions are going to come when we reform the entire economy. I mean, there's no way around it. I mean, this is how I concluded Excellent Sheep. You know, the, ultimately the problems with you know kids in suburban high schools being driven crazy because they're taking 12 APs and have no time to sleep and want to kill themselves. I mean, ultimately, that's rooted in a brutally unequal economy and a winner-take-all economy. And the problems we've been talking about today are rooted in a brutally unequal economy that makes housing unaffordable, that makes higher education unaffordable, but also the specific formations of the internet giants. And as I said before, they need to be broken up, and the parts that can't be broken up need to be regulated. Um, we need to do this before they, I mean, before they sort of achieve escape velocity and become so powerful and so wealthy that, that, uh, any, any attempts, you know, however much the political will may may exist in the populist Congress is simply so beholden to them that they refuse to act. There's been a lot of movement in that direction. I fear, I fear that the pandemic has somewhat obscured it, but I think the pandemic has also led to an, uh, an increased era of labor activism. We're already in an era of labor activism. I think the pandemic has has boosted that. Um, you know, I mean, we could talk about you know more specifically the, the the courts. Both the courts and Congress were already moving to uh, more rigorous antitrust legislation with respect to uh, the internet uh, giants. But we need to keep the pressure on because um, they're not going to they're not going to let it they're not going to let it happen easily. Right. And yeah, I, I'm thinking of the, um, the fight that happened in New York City in Queens, I believe, over the new Amazon headquarters where the city yes. or state wanted to give them this sweetheart yes. deal. And there was enough local, um, you know, opposition to it that, yes. uh, they scuttled it. So, you know, Amazon doesn't often lose. So that was an example where Amazon lost. And 
there's also, I mean, I guess it's just a growing consciousness among people that like these things are happening and that they're bad. Probably if you had asked me in 2015, like, is Facebook good or bad for the world? I'd be like, well, it's probably a little bit bad. Like, you know, everyone's like wasting their time on here, but you know, what, you know, but after the 2016 election, probably more people like me were like, oh shit, this is like, this is really bad for the world. And, you know, probably if I could like snap my fingers and make it disappear, I would. Um, so yeah, so there's a there's definitely a change in, in consciousness. Uh, you, you talk about a little bit about like universal basic income, um, and that's that's an idea that Andrew Yang introduced uh, into the wider, um, yeah. you know, uh, wider world uh, through his uh, presidential run. And it's I think it's something that maybe I think people are taking it more seriously than they did a couple of years ago for sure. Do you have what, what do you think about that? I mean, that would it would make it easier if you were a starving artist and you were getting a thousand dollars a month. That would make your life easier. It's true. I mean, I I'm not against universal basic income. I think I'm I may be more dismissive of it in the book than I should have been. I'm not dismissive of it, but what I sim- what I say is we need to make we need to uh create an economy that works for everybody. I mean, we've heard this a, a million times. But I mean, I'm just old enough. I'm 56. I was a senior in high school when Reagan was elected. I'm just old enough to have remembered an economy that worked better for everybody. It may not have worked great for everybody, but it certainly worked a lot better. Um so my my point about universal basic income is that it's kind of an it's a it's a heavy thumb on the scale of the market where we redistribute. I'm not against it, but I certainly don't want it to be the only thing that we do. So we also need to let unions. Unions have been hobbled for decades. They've been prevented from engaging in collective bargaining. We need to unshackle they and they they've been hobbled by specific government action, basically by a national labor relations board that's been dominated by conservatives. Um, Tens of millions of workers want to unionize who have not been allowed to unionize. If we let unions do what unions want to do, that will that will rebalance the economy in a more organic way. We also need to update labor law to cover the increasing number of gig workers, part-time workers, peace workers, right? Labor law really only covers – for the most part, it only covers full-time employees. It was created for a very different economy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know – that and and other things. Yeah, the um, the, the over the past couple of years, the um, you know, growing unionization drives among sort of uh, white collar knowledge workers and media workers. It's really been an interesting. There was this fight with the staff of the um, uh, the, the the members of the New Yorker Union, New Yorker yep. Magazine, which they apparently just won. Uh, Within the past 24 hours, I didn't entirely understand what it was about, but it's, everyone seemed very happy. So that's good. I mean, it's just, it's funny to think, you know, when I was sort of starting to pay attention to politics and stuff, it was like, you know, unionization was kind of like, oh, that, you know, that's yesterday's solution and, you know, it failed and, and so, and don't think about <laughs> it. And the and kind of like, you know, I think the, the people who, the staff of the New Republic, I think is now unionized, which would have been, uh, if you talk to the, uh, <laughs> you know, people who worked in New Republic in the late eighties and early nineties, such as the, Two people, Mickey Cass and Robert Wright, who founded this this uh, platform. They, you know, that, that it was a very anti, like, you know, it was unionism was like one of the things keeping back the the Democratic Party from from success and basically needed to be repudiated. So things have so things have certainly changed. Um, have you have you followed? Well, that was the... always a bunch of crap. <laughs> by the way, unionism didn't fail. Unionism was murdered. Unionism was murdered. It was murdered by Reaganomics. Mm-hmm. And by Reagan's National Labor Relations Board, but we can move on. <laughs> what, what did you want to ask? Have me? you followed the story, the story of Deadspin um, at all? Uh, I um, yeah, but rem- remind me. 
so Deadspin was, I mean, it still exists. Dead, Deadspin was, was the sports version of Gawker. And then, um, when, uh, Hulk Hogan and Peter, secretly Peter Thiel, the, you know, evil, uh, PayPal billionaire, um, used a lawsuit to bankrupt Gawker, um, the Gawker, uh, you know, the, the, the original site Gawker, like, went defunct, but changed to this other site Splinter that has since also gone defunct. But a lot of the other sites were still successful, and one of them was Deadspin, and it was, like, maybe their most popular site. And then the assets were at some point owned by, uh, I think, Univision or Telemundo or one of those. It was a weird, you know, it was like Gizmodo Group was owned by Telemundo or something. And then they were sold, then eventually it was sold to some sort of private equity group. And they installed some, like, you know, it was this, it had still this snarky, you know, fuck you attitude that Gawker embodied. And they installed some like 50 or 60 year old editor, um, who was totally out of touch with the staff. And there was all this, uh, you know, there was all this friction between the staff and the, and the management. And then the management fired the editor in chief. And then the entire staff quit over the span of like 48 hours. So, so then the site was effectively dead and you know, didn't update for like months. And then they tried to, they brought in new writers who the old writers called scabs and they, um, brought it back, but it's essentially just nothing now. It's, you know, it's, it's just like a, sp- a sports site like any other. So all the people who were laid off, you know, they spent a year, this maybe happened two years ago. They, you know, some of them were freelan- freelancing or got other jobs, but a lot of them came back together and reformed essentially to re- try to recreate Despin, but as a like, um, employee-owned operation. I believe it's called Defector. Um, and it, so they relaunched it within the past month or so. I was never into, really into Deadspin to begin with, so I haven't checked it out aside from glancing at it. But it is an interesting model to think about, you know, the, uh, the private equity hedge fund people have sucked all the value out of these, uh, properties, but the, the workers still have the talent, and if they can somehow get enough seed money to, or something, or or just um, you know work with advertising themselves, so they don't, so they don't. It's not like private equity owns some share of it. Like they they have restarted it and seem optimistic. Who knows? It's obviously a very hard time to um, do anything well, anything in media and sports is very uncertain during the pandemic. Also, so who, like who knows what's going to happen? But, but it seems this is the question. I mean, there have been lots of interesting media ventures in the last ten or twenty years. Um, I mean, depending on what you're thinking about all of them, and I don't necessarily read much of any of them, but, you know, Vice and Vox and The All was – people love that and Hairpin and and I think they were the part of the same thing. You know, I mean a lot of these. And there was a lot of optimism and a lot of buzz around places like Vice and Vox and a bunch of the others. Um, what's turned out is that none of them can actually make – make it financially. I mean, I wish the Deadspin people all the best. You've reminded me of the story, and I, I hear great things about the site. I, I really hope it works for them. There's no reason to think that it will, because just like Facebook and Google have taken all the traffic from uh, old line media companies, magazines, and newspapers, they take the traffic from these guys, too. These guys can't compete. You talk about ad-supported. They can't, you know, it doesn't work. All the ads go to Facebook and Google. The the number three company that's rising up against Facebook, you know, to take ad share from Facebook and Google is Amazon. So 
How's it going to work? Are they going to be able to have a subscription-based model? It, it, it might be. Yeah, them? It might be some oh, sort of subscription yeah. thing and kind of that, an that NPR makes more sense. An NPR model of guilting people to support this. You know, these people were poorly treated by everyone, and you like them, so you know, pledge them five dollars a month or something like that. That'd be my guess about. But maybe it's a mix yeah, of advertising, and that can sometimes work with niche publications or just individuals. You know, Substack now is this model for writers to sort of, and Patreon, of course, is a crowdfunding platform that's basically a subscription model. And a few, you know, some small percentage of people that are Patreon earn enough to sort of make it viable. But I hope it works for them. But yeah. like I said, there's we we need to change the structure. We need to change the structures within which these people are trying to do good work. That's the point. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, maybe this is the last question. Uh, so obviously you wrote this book before the coronavirus pandemic and released during uh, the coronavirus pandemic. Um, I mean, So I guess things are starting to change, but for a long time you couldn't go – if you wanted to buy a book, you, you couldn't go into a bookstore to buy it. You had to use Amazon or something. You couldn't go to a museum or a gallery. Uh, you couldn't uh, go to a concert – uh, you know, touring, uh, Broadway, Broadway shut down, uh, t- touring music shut down for the foreseeable future. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts? Are, are things going to, is this going to be a permanent change, um, in that a lot of things are just going to go defunct because of the crisis or do you think something new yes. could come of this or how, how are you thinking about it? Listen, I mean, who knows? Um, people in the arts are very creative and there's, there's a lot of vigorous conversation, in all the arts, about how this might provide the opportunity for a reset and things are going to change and the pandemic and the new conditions are forcing people to kind of re, you know, reorient their business models. But the fact, you know, and I, again, I, I wish all of those ventures well, but I do not indulge in optimism. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I hope things change, but people say, well, now everything's going to change or now we're going to turn the corner. There's no reason to believe that. All I'm willing to talk about is what I can see in front of me. What I can see in front of me is what you just outlined. The arts have been massacred by the pandemic. I mean, look, one of the things that's happened, one of the big things, one of the big themes is that because digital content has been priced at zero, artists have to now make their living by selling things that can't be digitized, which means objects or experiences. And experiences have generally meant live experiences. So musicians have been told that they have to tour constantly, 200 dates a year. Um, None of that can happen now. So the the very thing that was supposed to save artists from digital demonetization, live events, has now been temporarily destroyed. And a lot of people, a lot of mid-tier galleries are going out of business. Small museums are going to go out of business. Um, Independent music venues are going to go out of business. You know, Live Nation, which is now the giant in the music industry, they own, you know... They own venues. They manage artists. They sell tickets. Um, They're doing fine, or at least they're doing well enough. They have such deep pockets that they can survive. Gagosian is going to survive. The big labels are probably going to survive. All the stuff in the middle, which is where the interesting stuff happens, where where young artists get a foothold. That's getting decimated. And I don't know. I don't know where we're going to be when this is all over. I mean, just like all the retail stores that are going out of business in my city, in New York City, in other cities, are they going to come back? Are they going to be able to come back? We shouldn't assume that, oh, 
uh, after the le- after the Black Death in 1348, we got the Renaissance. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's that's a little simplistic. <laughs> um. Yeah, yeah, I don't, uh, yeah, I don't see a, a re-renaissance happening, but who knows? Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, in some ways, the way you're describing it, it's just it, it accelerating the trends that were happening already because of the technological, exactly, and eco- economic forces. This exactly. is, is just like exactly. they're on crack or something now. <laughs> they're just like going faster That's and faster. Exactly right. And the middle is getting hollowed out. Um, okay, so that is not an optimistic note, Dan. Oh, I actually no, I did have one other question, and you'll indulge me. Um, and that is related to the to your first book. Um, which I confess I didn't read, but I did listen to the episode that you did on Blogging Heads um, about it. And I, at the time, I thought there were things I agreed with and things I disagreed with. But I wonder if, I mean, so the, the way uh, uh, college campuses are viewed um, in the national conversation kind of changed after that book came out, um, where it was much more these crazy college students with their intersectionality and their pronouns are going nuts and they're deplatforming speakers and they're, you know, um, yelling at administrators. And one of the signal uh, viral events in this was this uh, student yelling at uh, Nicholas Christakis, who was then the, the um, master, although I think they eliminated that term, of Silliman College at Yale. And I remember being really shocked by that uh, because it was not something I could imagine ever happening when I was a student. Um, but then, yeah, it became like the, you know, these, these wacko activist students – are are out of control. I, I thought that seemed to that that was different <laughs> uh, a, a different understanding than yours, which was about like the the kids who are so concerned with getting a job after graduation that like they're studying all the time and working themselves to death, and they just they you know they don't care about like really learning like uh, valuable truths from liberal arts. It's, it's just like getting the credential and then moving on. Whereas the kid, I mean, if you're um you know if you're screaming at a professor like uh, on the quad like getting a credential is not your your main concern, it seems like. So have, does this make any sense? Do you have any thoughts about this? Oh, I have thoughts about this. I've, I've actually written about this. I have, a, I have an essay that people can look up that's called On Political Correctness. Uh, maybe if I wrote it now, I'd call it On Wokeness. Mm-hmm. Um, partly, this is a complicated issue, and I'm not, I'm not going to get into all the complexities of it. Um, but... How does it connect with the argument in Excellent Sheep that these students are sort of careerists with kind of an empty ambition? There's no contradiction at all in my in my view. In fact, I think they dovetail very well. First of all, as education is emptied of any kind of intrinsic value, as it becomes this careerist meritocratic rat race, students are naturally going to look for meaning somewhere else. David Brooks talks about this, and I – I, I think half of what David Brooks says is nonsense and half of it is very insightful. And <laughs> I especially agree, I stuff, agree. stuff that he says about college students tends to be very insightful. Um, so wokeness or political correctness provides moral content for students in the absence of any other – in in the in context of institutions that are have become value neutral. The universities don't even stand for the values that they used to stand for like education, like the liberal arts. Second thing is that I think that wokeness for a lot of students is a moral fig leaf for their careerist projects. The careerist project goes on. You go out in the quad, you yell at Nick Christakis, you feel great about yourself, and then you go back and you interview for Goldman, you interview for McKinsey, (laughs) you climb over each other to get into the best medical schools. There's no decline in the percentage of students at elite universities who are going into the big five prestige professions. 
consulting, banking, medicine, law, and now computers. No decline at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I had a chance. What I would say to the students now is you think that you're part of the solution. You're part of the problem. Your little protest over pronouns or the word master at Yale isn't going to change a goddamn thing. But by going to Yale and schools like that, you are making yourself part of an elite that manages a system that's brutally unequal. And maybe you're helping the cause of racial justice. I don't even know how much you're doing that, but maybe you are. I mean, the real racial justice activists are not Ivy League students, right? Right. They're very different people. But even if you are, there's something other than race, right? I mean, I... I and people like Glenn Lowry and, and leftists like Adolf Reed, black leftists like Adolf Reed have complained about this. That mm-hmm. Yeah, race is an issue in America, of course, but it's also used to conceal what is the fundamental issue, I think, and others think, which is class. Right. And people can talk about checking their privilege as a white person. It's so easy. You know why it's easy? Because you can't surrender your privilege as a white person. You can feel bad about it, but you can't surrender it. You can surrender your privilege as an affluent person, but nobody wants to do that. So they get up and they yell about students, you know, about bon me and cultural appropriation in the in the dining hall like they did at Oberlin or about st- some student wearing moccasins like happened to one of my students at Scripps College because that's cultural appropriation. But they're completely ignoring their real position in society, not as white people, but as affluent elite you know, members members in training of the elite. So that's my take on the campus activism. Um, yeah, I, I find that hard to disagree with. And yeah, the I've been you know thinking for a long time that the um, and obviously not original to me that the um, you know race is is often used in America to um, you know drive apart uh, people of the same class uh, who have shared interests and. Um, and yeah, and, and just, you know, I think I said this on the show before, but the um, how quickly every major corporation in America put out a statement saying they support Black Lives Matter kind of shows that Black Lives Matter does not actually threaten any major corporation, including like Skittles and, uh, you know, other stuff. So, uh, yeah, and, and, and tearing down a statue doesn't threaten um, the people in power either. So that's right. So, yeah. OK, so uh, do you have anything else, else you want to say? We've gone, no, we've gone a little long. Covered it. Okay, so the book is The Death of the Artist. Um, it, I feel like it's actually not as depressing as this conversation would indicate it is, because as I said, you have a lot of interviews with people who talk right. about how they are surviving in this right. in this economy, and and some of them are thriving, and it's inter- and people, including people I never heard of before, who I'm interested in like checking out their stuff. So, um, so yeah, I encourage people to, uh, to uh, check out the book. So, um, so Bill, thank you for for coming on. Um, is there anywhere? I mean, do you want to direct people? Are you are you a Twitter person? I'm on Twitter. I don't. I don't do a lot of tweeting, but people can find me. Uh, just Google my name. You'll find my website, BillDerezowitz.com. I love to hear from people. I'd love to get emails from people. Let me know what you think of the book, or just whatever, or the last book, Excellent Sheep, whatever you want to talk about. Okay, cool. And uh, and yeah, and I'm on Twitter at reacw, and uh, you can follow me there if you wish. So uh, so thank you, Bill. Th- thank you to all of our viewers and listeners, and we'll see you again next time.